One and all, welcome back to the latest, the greatest edition of Nick's Nonfiction here with your host, Nick Muniz. Today on the show, we have got Joe Dispenza's You Are the Placebo. A lady gives a man a jar of dirt and says, here, this will protect you. He says, no, it won't. It's just a jar of dirt. The lady says, all right, then give it to me. The man snaps back, no way. This jar of dirt protects me. Is it possible to heal by thought alone, without drugs or surgery, with only a jar of dirt? The truth is that it happens more than you might expect. In You Are the Placebo, Dr. Joe Dispenza shares numerous documented cases of those who reversed cancer, heart disease, depression, crippling arthritis, and the tremors of Parkinson's disease by believing in a placebo. Hippocrates said, The man who takes medicine has to recover twice, once from the disease and once from the medicine. Joe Dispenza, he's here to cut out the middleman today. He's calling all modern doctors a bunch of Hippocratic hypocrites. Goes both ways. Dr. Joe Dispenza tells how others have gotten sick and even died of the victims of a hex or voodoo curses after being misdiagnosed with a fatal illness. So, hoodoo, you're talking crazy, Nick. It's called the nocebo effect. Belief can be so strong that pharmaceutical companies use double and triple blind randomized studies to try to exclude the power of the mind over the body when evaluating new drugs. This question led him to write the book. Is it possible to teach the principles of the placebo and without relying on any external substance, producing the same internal changes in a person's health and ultimately in his or her life? So if you listen to the full show today, you might leave with the ability to heal yourself. The doctor says to his patient, is that placebo working well for you? The patient responds, well, now it is. (laughs) About the author, Joe Dispenza. The spends a lot of time with the placebo. Here's some qualifications for any appeal to authority listeners. Joe Dispenza, New York Times bestselling author, researcher, and international lecturer, has received a BS from Evergreen State College, a doctor of chiropractic degree, graduated with honors, and then studied neurology, neuroscience, brain function, chemistry, cellular biology, memory formation, aging, and longevity. New age! Here's the thesis one more time. You Are the Placebo combines the latest research in neuroscience, biology, psychology, hypnosis, behavioral conditioning, and quantum physics to demystify the workings of the placebo effect. My whole life, I've only ever seen two concerts, the placebo and the cure. They were just as good as one another. (laughs) This is going to be a good one. You Are the Placebo, Chapter 1, Healing. The story begins... When Joe Dispenza was in his early 20s, he's running a triathlon. April 1986, in the middle of this triathlon, he was ran over by an SUV. He broke six of his vertebrae. Several doctors told him to get a rod put in his back or he would never be able to walk again. At nine and a half weeks after the accident, I got up and walked back into my life. But I thought he was never going to walk again. He's a chiropractor. He's into alternative healing. Joe spent three months at home every morning visualizing the reconstruction of his spine for two hours, twice a day. I don't know how you explain that. (laughs) He got up, walked back into his life. 
Without having any body cast, any surgeries, I had a full recovery. I started seeing patients again at week 10 and was back to training and lifting weights again while continuing my rehabilitation at 12 weeks. And now, almost 30 years after the accident, I can honestly say that I have hardly ever felt back pain since. So there's your first healing case. This man placeboed himself into learning how to walk again. But three doctors told him, you'll never be able to walk. Watch me. Dispenza, he starts focusing on spirituality, spontaneous remission cases. He thinks he can recreate his healing in other people. So he starts like hosting workshops. Between his first and second year, he cured two people with MS. So the main thesis of his workshop was... What if people begin to believe in themselves instead of something outside of themselves? What if they believe that they can change something inside of them and move themselves to the same state of being as someone who's taking a placebo? And placebo bills, that's not up for debate. They've shown to work in the lab. He's taken it to the next step. Can we get people's mind to fix themselves rather than a fake pill? So here's some more healings. Sam Lond, a retired shoe salesman living outside of St. Louis in the early 1970s, began to have difficulty swallowing. He eventually went to see a doctor who discovered that Lond had metastatic esophageal cancer. In those days, metastatic esophageal cancer was considered incurable. No one had ever survived it. His liver wound up being riddled with cancer as well. Rather than surgery, Lond moved to the country and found a new doctor. The doctor discovered his previous house was destroyed in a flood. His wife's body was never found. This was six months before his diagnosis. The doctor was honest. What do you want me to do for you? Lond said, help me make it through Christmas with my new wife. As you might assume, this story is about a typical cancer diagnosis followed by an unfortunate fatal death. Right? Not so fast. A funny thing happened when the hospital performed Lon's autopsy. The man's liver was, in fact, not filled with cancer. He had only a very tiny nodule of cancer in his left lobe and another very small spot on his lung. The truth is neither cancer was big enough to kill him, and in fact, the area around his esophagus was totally free of disease. But, but he's dying of esophageal cancer. Zero cancer to be found. The truth is neither cancer was big enough to kill him. The abnormal liver scan taken at the St. Louis Hospital had apparently yielded a false positive result. So just like Dispenza, if he listened to the doctors that said you're never going to walk again, he wouldn't have walked. Sam Long didn't die of esophageal cancer, nor did he die of liver cancer. He also didn't die of the mild case of pneumonia he had when he was readmitted to the hospital. He died quite simply because everybody in his immediate environment thought he was dying. His doctor in St. Louis thought Lon was dying, and then Dr. Meter in Nashville thought Lon was dying. Lon's wife and family thought he was dying, and most important, Lon himself thought he was dying. It is possible that Sam Lon died from thoughts alone. Is it possible that thought is that powerful? Damn. It's a good curveball. You thought it was going to be a healing case, but that guy's had the stinking thinking, and he died from it. 26-year-old graduate student Fred Mason became depressed when his girlfriend broke up with him. He saw an ad for a clinical trial of new antidepressant medication and decided to enroll. He had a bout of depression four years previously, at which time his doctor prescribed the antidepressant amitriptyline. 
but Mason had been forced to stop the medication when he became excessively drowsy and developed numbness. He had felt the drug was too strong for him and now hoped the drug would have fewer side effects. So he goes into this trial. After he had been in the study for about a month, he decided to call his ex-girlfriend. The two of them argued on the phone. After Mason hung up, he impulsively grabbed his bottle of pills from the trial and swallowed all 29 that were left in the container. Attempting snooim's mind. Can't say that word for the censors. He immediately repented, running into the hallway of his apartment. Mason desperately called out for help and then collapsed on the floor. A neighbor heard his cry and found him on the ground. When Mason got to the emergency room, he was pale and sweating. His blood pressure was 80 over 40 with a pulse rate of 140. Breathing rapidly, he kept repeating, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. When the doctors examined him, they found nothing wrong other than his low blood pressure and rapid pulse and rapid breathing. Even so, he seemed lethargic and his speech was slurred. The medical team inserted an IV and hooked it up to a saline drip, took samples of Mason's blood and urine, and asked what drugs he had taken. Mason couldn't remember the name. Four hours later, after the results of the lab test came back totally normal, a physician who had been part of the clinical drug trial arrived. Checking the code on the label of Mason's empty pill bottle, the researcher looked on the records for the trial. He announced that Mason had actually been taking a placebo. Mason, you played yourself. (laughs) There were 29 placebo pills he took. Just pills of salt, nothing, and it increased his blood rate. He thought he was dying. As if by magic, he was no longer excessively drowsy. Mason had fallen victim to the nocebo, a harmless substance that, thanks to strong expectation, causes harmful effects. Is it really possible that Mason's symptoms had been brought on solely because he'd expected to happen from swallowing a huge handful of antidepressants? Could Mason's mind, as in the case of Sam Lon, had been taken control of his body, driven by expectations of what seemed to be the most probable future scenario? Could that happen even if that meant his mind would have taken control of normal functions under conscious control? And if that were possible, could it also be true that if our thoughts can make us sick, we also have the ability to use our thoughts to make us well? Janice Seanfield, a 46-year-old interior designer living in California, had suffered with depression since she was a teenager. She never sought help with the condition until she saw a newspaper ad in 1997. The UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute was looking for volunteers for a drug trial to test a new antidepressant called Valaxaphine. Seanfield, whose depression had escalated to the point where her wife and mother had actually entertained thoughts of suicide, jumped at the chance. I thought she meant jumped. She wants to be part of the trial. It's a group of 51 patients. They're taking a drug. 26 of the people receive a placebo. Neither the doctors or the patients know who has it. So that's the double blind. Not long after she started taking her pills, Seanfield began feeling dramatically better for the first time in her life. Ironically, she also felt nauseated, but that was good news because the nausea was a common side effect of the drug being tested. She thought that she surely must have gotten the active drug if her depression was lifting and she was also experiencing side effects. Even the nurse she spoke to when she returned every week was convinced Seanfield must be getting the real thing because of the changes she was experiencing. Finally, at the end of the eight-week study, one of the researchers revealed the shocking truth. Seanfield, who was no longer Suim Smirmer, felt like a new person after taking the pills had actually been in the placebo group. 
Seanfield was floored. She had sure the doctor had made a mistake. She simply didn't believe she could have felt so much better after so many years of suffering depression. And she'd gotten the side effects too. There must have been a mix-up. She asked the doctor to check the records again. He laughed good-naturedly and assured her that the bottle she had taken at home with her was the bottle of placebo pills. Chick cured her incurable depression with sugar pills. Another one. Bro, they do EEG scans on people. Seanfield's mind, it actually changed. So it wasn't these sugar pills that changed her mind. It was her thought that she was changing that changed her mind. What the fuck? You can change your neuroplasticity without Pfizer. <laughs> so they checked back in with Sean Field a decade later, and she still felt as good as new. I'm saying these stories kind of make me emotional because... We're pretty powerful. You don't need to listen to the TV or your happy pills. It's all inside you. We got another UCA, UCLA study. This one is the most dramatic. A guy thought he had huge tumors, some as big as an orange. Yeah, so he had tumors, but he took a fistful of placebos. His name was Mr. Wright, and his orange-sized tumors went away. In 1996, orthopedic surgeon Bruce Mosley, uh, Baylor College, he was Houston's leading expert in orthopedic sports medicine, published a trial study based on his experience with 10 volunteers. That story was... Uh, bro, this is a fucking crazy story. I'll make it shorter. He took 10 people, knocked them out with amnesia, and told them he was going to do knee surgery on them. He doesn't do knee surgery on them. After the fake surgery, all 10 of the patients in the study reported greater mobility and less pain. In fact, the men who received the pretend surgery did just as well as those who received uh, lavish surgery. There was no difference in the result even six months later. A wealth of research now exists to show that our attitude does indeed affect our health, including how long we live. For example, the Mayo Click pub Clinic, published in 2002, that followed 447 people for more than 30 years, showing that optimists were healthier physically and mentally. Nine optimists, yeah, they, ex they had better health than the people that took the drugs. With daily activities as a result of their physical health and their emotional state experienced less plain, pain, felt more energetic, had an easier time with social activities, and felt happier, calmer, and more peaceful most of the time. So that's just chapter one. Digestive problems, Parkinson's, surgery, tumors. If you got the self-confidence and the time to heal, six of your vertebrae are coming back to life. Chapter two, placebo history. As the saying goes, Desperate times call for desperate measures. When Harvard-educated American surgeon Henry Beecher was serving in World War II, he ran out of morphine. Near the end of the war, morphine was in short supply in military field hospitals, so this situation wasn't uncommon. At the time Beecher was about to operate on a badly wounded soldier, he wasn't afraid that without the painkiller, the soldier might go into fatal cardiac shock. What happened next astounded him. Without skipping a beat, one of the nurses filled the syringe with saline and gave the soldier a shot, just as if she were injecting him with morphine. The soldier calmed down right away. He reacted as though he'd actually received the drug, even though all he received was a squirt of salt water. 
Beecher went ahead with the operation, cutting into the soldier's flesh, making what repairs were necessary, and sewing him back up, all without amnesia. The soldier felt little pain and did not go into shock. How could it be? Beecher wondered. The salt water could stand in for morphine. 1955, this Harvard doctor, Beecher, made history when he authored a clinical review of 15 studies published by the Journal of American Medical Association that not only discussed the huge significance of placebos, but also called for a new medical model of medical research that would randomly assign subjects to receive active medication or placebos, what we now refer to as randomized controlled trials. The idea that we can alter physical reality through thought, belief, and expectation alone certainly didn't start on the World War II field hospitals. The Bible is filled with stories of miraculous healings, and even in modern times, people regularly flock to places such as Lourdes in South France, where a 14-year-old peasant girl named Bernadette had a vision of the Virgin Mary. Leaving behind their crutches, braces, and wheelchairs as proof that they've been healed, faith healings sound less than a placebo. The late Indian guru, Sathya Sai Baba, widely considered by his followers to be an avatar, a manifestation of a deity, was known to manifest holy ash called a vibhuti, vibhuti, from the palms of his hands. The fine gray ash had been said to have the power to heal many physical, mental, and spiritual ills when either eaten or applied to the skin as a paste. Tibetan lamas are also said to have healing powers using their breath to heal by blowing on the sick. Even French and English kings reigning between the 4th and 9th centuries used the laying of hands to cure the subject. King Charles II of England was known to be particularly adept to this, performing the practice of a hundred thousand times. Damn. Anton Mesmer particularly cured teenage concert pianist Maria Theresia von Paredes of hysterical blindness, a psychosomatic condition she'd had since the age of three. She stayed in Mesmer's home for a week as he worked with her and finally helped her to be able to perceive motion and then distinguish color. But her parents were less than overjoyed by her progress because they stood to lose a royal pension if her daughter was cured. Make my daughter blind again so the checks keep coming. So this chapter is a little bit iffy. Like, the main takeaway isn't that we need more healers, more false idols. The healing power is what you choose to believe in. So if you choose to believe you're going to heal yourself, you're going to do it. If you choose to believe, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, have fun with that. Dispenza, <laughs> I need pills. Dispenza cited studies after World War II. Yeah, bro, that's my notes. But your thoughts are the thing that create the whole new reality. It's not the placebo and it's not the healer. It's you. It's what you believe. <laughs> In the 1970s, John Levine at UCSF showed that placebos could release endorphins. The happy pill is your thoughts. What the heck? In the West, people call it conditioning. You know, you have to set up Pavlov's bell. Uh, my morphine. Now I'm good because you hit the bell. In the East, they call it positive thought. It's just a mantra. So whichever side, East or West, you're on, you just got to watch what information you're taking in. Make sure it's positive. In the 1990s, Kiko Hayashi, PhD, University of Tsubuki in Japan, showed the same thing. Twelve of Hayashi studied diabetic patients watching an hour-long comedy program unpregulated a total of 39 genes, 14 of which were related to natural killer cell activity. There you go. Laughter 
is the best medicine. <laughs> As Cousins said, a placebo back in 1979, the process works best not because of any magic in the tablet, but because the human body is its own best apothecary and because the most successful prescriptions are filled with the body itself. Chapter 3. Suggestibility. This is going deeper into what I just said there. Watch what information you let in, because if you let negative information in, you're suggestible to that. Your subconscious mind, it doesn't have the barriers. So anything you let past your prefrontal, your subconscious is going to digest. So like, you know all these evil commercials you see on TV where they list a hundred side effects? You start to feel uneasy after you hear those commercials. Do you have blood in your stool? Do you have an itchy scalp? Is your penis dripping? I'll take it a step further. I think these pharma companies, they're doing sigil magic with this shit. Zyrtec the Dark Lord. Rivnox the Sly. Dupisant the Cunning. Even letting those commercials into your awareness, it opens up your subconscious mind to suggestibility. That's why it's illegal in a lot of countries. Spenza spends the whole chapter talking about fake dinners. So, like, you ever see that Netflix thing? It's I think it's called The Push. They convince these, like, corporate people to push somebody off of a roof by the end of the night. It was ten regular people, and seven of them wound up pushing a guy off the roof. That's all just suggestibility studies. The whole idea is once you accept an imagined scenario as the truth, your body syncs up with whatever that false reality is. So you might as well make it a positive one. Whether they took a regimen of daily sugar pills lasting weeks or even months, received a single saline injection, or submitted to fake surgery, individuals reaffirmed their acceptance, belief, and surrender to the duration of the study they participate in. If they were taking a pill daily to relieve pain, their intentional activity would reinforce this internal process over and over again. So even I, I love that meme, it's Garfield, and he goes, you are not immune to propaganda. So literally everybody can be hit with suggestibility. I was watching this Marshall McLuhan lecture recently, and he did a study where people who are more literate have a higher tolerance to alcohol. Just knowing about this shit is good for you. They did another study where they blindfolded people, put them in bath water with either hot or cold water, and the outcomes were a 50-50 guess. So without precursory information, the body doesn't even know whether it's hot or cold. That's why they have to put the little red and the blue thing on your faucet. <laughs> and we'll read that Iceman book eventually. You can completely control your response to the elements. How else do those shoeless motherfuckers in Africa, they walk across a coal field 2,000 degrees? Shouldn't be possible. If those same people who can't accept that a drug or procedure could make them well could reach a new level of acceptance and belief and then surrender to that end without constantly fretting, worrying, and analyzing, then they could reap greater rewards from the process. That's what suggestibility is. Making a thought into a virtual experience and having our bodies consequently respond in a new manner. Think about it like this. When you feel a certain familiar way, you're subconsciously accessing a series of thoughts derived from the particular feeling. Your auto-suggesting thoughts on a daily basis equal how you feel. These are the thoughts you accept, believe, and surrender to as if they were true. 
Therefore, you're more suggestible only to the thoughts that are matched to exactly the same feeling. As a result, those thoughts that you unconsciously think are the ones you accept, believe, and surrender to over and over. you got to be the DJ of your own inner radio. Chapter 4, More Healings. A few more big points from Dispenza before we wrap it up. This book is about making your mind matter. You now understand that the placebo works because a person accepts and believes in a known remedy, a fake pill, injection, or a procedure substituted for a real counterpart, and then surrender and then surrender to the outcome without overanalyzing how it's going to happen. That's big. That's metaphysical magic right there. You don't have to get caught up in every single step of the way. Your subconscious is stronger than your logical mind. So if you set the course of the GPS of your brain, it's going to get you there. And beyond that, the universe is way smarter than your prefrontal cortex. Once you surrender to a path, your subconscious and the environment set up that path for you. But Nick, you're not a millionaire comedian. Why should I believe you? I haven't picked the path. I don't want to be on a path. I'm Nick fucking Muniz. Nick's nonfiction. But seriously, if you want to be a millionaire, then all you have to do is think about being a millionaire every second of every day. No more chips. No more salsa. Just set that GPS as your only intention. And again, you'll miss out on a lot. So is money the best thing? Joe says, it becomes a known stimulus automatically producing a known response. And what do they say in the hippie community? Dude, like attracts like. Everybody's saying the same thing. <laughs> the bottom line is, in the classic placebo effect, our belief lies in something outside of us. We give our power away to the material world where our senses define reality. But can the placebo work by creating from the immaterial world of thought and making that unknown possibility a new reality? That would be a more prudent use of the quantum model. And so, yeah, the reasonable people say it doesn't work. You could blame me, the messenger, but it's because we all live in fear. Because of the research in these workshops, as well as the constant testimonials I've received from people around the world, I now know that you are the placebo. My students demonstrate that instead of investing their belief in the known, they can place their belief in the unknown and make the unknown known. So I'm saying we live in fear. It's scary to... Like, meditation sounds scary. What bad thoughts have I been avoiding that are going to jump me as soon as I set the timer? But once you surrender to the unknown and just set five minutes aside, you start to reap the benefits of discomfort. Think about this for a moment. The idea of verifiable healing exists as unknown potential reality in the quantum field. Until it is observed and realized and has materialized, it lives as a possibility in an infinite field of information defined as nothing physically but all material possibilities combined. Dude, I don't want to confuse people. It's positivity. That's all we need. Like, I haven't been sick in maybe five years now, people, not even a fucking runny nose. I don't do that shit. You hear my attitude? Well, Nick, you're brash. You're hard to listen to. No, fuck that. I'm not getting sick. Nick, you need to... <laughs> it's like confidence, but there's a quantum level to it. So I'm not saying you're going to quantum leap the winning lottery ticket into your hands. People have claimed to do that, but I'm just sticking with the biology today. You can make yourself healthy. 
So if you can experience a healing over and over again in the inner world of thoughts and feelings, then in time that healing should finally manifest as an outer experience. And if you make a thought as real as the experience in the external environment, shouldn't there be evidence in your body and brain sooner than later? In other words, if you mentally rehearse the unknown future with a clear intention and an elevated emotion and do it repeatedly, then based on what you've learned, you should have real neuroplastic changes in your brain and epigenetic changes in your body. So I'm saying your health is the biggest lottery ticket that you can win. Don't waste your power on trying to conjure money. If you're fucking in a wheelchair, why do you even want to be a millionaire? There's some millionaire in a wheelchair listening. (laughs) You get it. All of the supporting evidence in this chapter is provided to inspire you to see firsthand the power of meditation. It is my desire that once you see proof of what's possible, it's worth taking the leap into the unknown. This guy knows. Final thoughts. You know who's really good at healing? Jesus. The guy walked around drinking wine and curing leopards. But what did he always say after healing people? It is your faith that has healed you. It's not the drunk hippie who thinks he could walk on water. It is your faith. Bro, the church, they're going to tell you to worship the fake idols. But King Charles, he cured 100,000 people. It isn't the idols. It is your faith that heals you. Take your fucking power back. There you guys have it. You are the placebo by Dr. Joe Dispenza. This is a really good book. I would recommend it to you guys. We hit the heavy beats, but there's some power in this guy's material. I'd recommend it. No doubt. Check it out. Our February themed edition that's coming up next week. We usually do men versus women, but this year we're getting philosophical about love. Trying to take these shows deeper, give you more bang for your buck. I love you guys. Thank you, the Knickers, for all the support. Harry Schwant, if you want some free memes at the end of the night, it's going to do it for us. Nick Muniz, signing off. Peace!